Turn in your Bibles to Acts 9. Last Sunday I preached from verses 32 through 35, showing us how the healing of Aeneas gives us a picture of the healing that is promised to each and every one of us in the age to come. We, we won't all experience full bodily healing in this age, or full healing of any kind, for that matter. In this age, we live, we must live, with a cup that is half full at best. But the day is coming when Jesus will fill our cups to overflowing, when he will make each of us and all of creation perfectly whole. We'll be perfectly whole bodily, emotionally, relationally, and most importantly, spiritually. This morning, we're not going to be moving on to verses 36 through 43. Actually, I'll be preaching from those verses next Sunday. This morning, we're going back to verse 31. Philip preached from verses 26 to 32 weeks ago, but because his focus was on Paul's time in Jerusalem, he wasn't able to give enough attention to verse 31, which is another one of Luke's snapshots, snapshot description of the early church. We saw the first of these descriptions at the end of chapter 2, where Luke described the church as devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, those four aspects of devotion. We were then given another snapshot at the end of chapter 4, where Luke described the church as of one heart and soul, holding everything in common so that there was not a needy person among them. Well, we have another one of those snapshot descriptions here in verse 31, and we need to take time to consider it carefully. Because these snapshot descriptions of the early church give us an invaluable picture of what the church is supposed to be like, supposed to look like, of the essential marks of a healthy church. Now, obviously, there are going to be some significant differences between the church in Cleveland, Tennessee in 2022 and the church in Judea or Galilee or Samaria in the first century, but there ought to be certain essential similarities. And verse 31 gives us a picture of the church that reveals a few of those essentials. And so let's go now and ask the Lord for His blessing as we prepare to hear the reading and preaching of His Holy Word, that we might hear and believe what He has to say to us. Let's pray. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept Your Word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it. Gracious Father, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded through Christ our Lord. Amen. Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all can come join me up front. So 
passage that we just read, there were three things happening in the church. First, the church was enjoying peace. They were at peace with each other. Second, it was being built up spiritually. It was getting stronger. And third, it was multiplying. It was growing in numbers. Now, all three of those things were important to the church back then. The, the church was coming together. It was becoming what God intended it to be. It was, it was getting stronger. Because God was rescuing his people. He, he was rescuing them through Jesus. They were growing in number. And they were enjoying their life together in God's kingdom. And, and all three of those things are important for our life today. They're important for us to be working on here and now. We, here at Trinity, we will be a healthy church if we're united in Jesus and we're not being divided by lesser things. We'll be a healthy church if we're growing in God's grace and looking more and more like Jesus in the way that we live, in the way that we behave. And, and we're going to be a healthy church as more people see that Jesus' spirit really is among us and, and those people are attracted to him. They come from the outside and they become a part of us. And, and as we work on these things, we're working on building Jesus' church. When we focus on Jesus and we walk in the ways of the Spirit and we reach out to others outside the church, Jesus is welcoming us into that work that he's doing. Remember, he's the one building his church. But look, look at this. We are not always good builders. Do you see how these two boards don't really line up? We, th there's a problem there. We, this is kind of how we are when we are working on all these things. It, it's so easy for us to argue over less important things and, and even to divide the church. But we, things don't really line up, and so we, we think that they can't come together. We, we sometimes allow other fears to control our behaviors uh, so that we don't look very much like Jesus. Sometimes we ignore people who aren't yet Christians and we don't even try to bring them into this community. Jesus calls us to work and we try, but our efforts are so often weak. But as you and I tell Jesus that we're sorry for our failures, and, and as we trust in him again, as, as we even try again, to work on all three of these things, enjoying peace and building others up and bringing others in, we can trust that he is still the master builder. He knows how to line up twisted pieces of wood and get them in alignment. And he knows how to connect them together again. And when he does that, when he lines up those twisted pieces and strengthens weak connections, he knows how to add people to his church and to build it strong. Jesus is the one who brings peace to his people. He's the one who helps us to live like him. He's the one who brings others in and adds them into his community. And because we can always trust Jesus to build his church, that's why we call this good news. you believe it?
Thanks, guys. If you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Sam said, we're looking this morning at a single verse. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. This is the third snapshot of the church that Luke gives us in the book of Acts. And that's why we're, we're taking the time to go back and look at it. When I uh, asked Sam to preach last Sunday because I was going to, to New York, uh, I told him what text he was going to preach on, and then I realized I wasn't going to get through uh, 26 through 31. So that's kind of typical me. Uh, but that's why we're going backwards this morning to pick up verse 31. But I, but I think it's important to do so because these snapshots are important. These these little pictures that he gives us of what the church looked like in the first century are, are significant. They're, they're significant for our life as the church today. As Sam said, obviously there will be differences between uh, a church in, in one place and one time and a church in, a, in an entirely different place and an entirely different time. But there should be certain similarities, certain essential characteristics that, that manifest in every church, in every place, in every time. And I believe that these snapshots give us a, a picture of those essentials. So this morning we're going to look at this verse. We're going to try to discern at least three particulars here uh, that I think are to uh, characterize the church in, in every place and in every Age. And the, the first is the unity and peace of the church that we see here. Look again at the very beginning of verse 31. Luke writes, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. And the thing I want you to, to notice is that Luke refers to the church, the, the church throughout this entire region, he refers to it in the singular. He refers to it as the church. Now, now no doubt there were many distinct congregations in these areas. There were, there were churches meeting in this home, and there were churches meeting in, in that home over there. And yet, Luke can refer to all of these various congregations, all of these various churches, as the church singular. And I think that is significant because it reminds us of the, of the vital truth that the church is one. Christ has one church. As, as Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, there is one church because there is one Lord. Remember what he writes. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And why are they to be eager to maintain this unity? Why are they eager to, to maintain this peace? Because there is one body and there is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. He couldn't hammer the point any harder. He is, he is making the point that the church is one. There is one God. There is one Lord. There is one Spirit. And he, he offers us one salvation that is procured by one faith that we all share in one hope. The gospel is one. God is one. And therefore the church is one. Christ has one body, the church. Singular. Now, obviously, as I said, there are many particular congregations, and, and Paul himself acknowledges this in his letters. He, he sometimes refers to the church as plural in a certain area. 
There are churches that, that, that meet at various places. There are churches that, that meet at various locations. Of course, there are multiple congregations, but it is important for us to know, it is important for us to acknowledge that these churches, in their plurality, are particular congregations of the one church, of, of Christ's one church. Christ's church meets in many locations, in many places, but it is one. All these congregations are members of the same body. This is no less true today than it was in the first century. Today there are churches, there are particular congregations all over the world. Not just in, in here in the Tennessee or the United States, but there are, there are churches all over the world. And today we don't only have churches, we don't only have different congregations, but we have different denominations. There are Presbyterian, and there are Baptists, and there are Methodists, and there are Church of God. There are, there are many denominations, and, and within those denominations, it's not like we have just one Presbyterian denomination or just one Baptist denomination. Just, just think about our own branch, the, the Presbyterian denomination. There's the PCA that we are a part of, but there's also the PCUSA, there's the EPC, there's the OPC, there's the ARP, and we can go on. There are many more besides, and, and every branch of every denomination could, could Write a similar list. But despite all of that apparent division, the fact remains that we are all part of one church. We, we are part of one body in Christ. Now, now don't hear what I'm not saying. The, the existence of different denominations is actually not uh, any more problematic than the existence of different congregations in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with the existence of, of different denominations. In fact, I would suggest to you that I, I think that in this present age, those divisions, those, those distinctions, can actually serve the unity of the church. You see, there are, there are things that good Christian men and women uh, disagree about. Any number of things related to the life and the, the practice and the, the culture of the church. There are polity questions for him. We're Presbyterian. That means that we are ruled by elders. That's just what the word means. That's why we're having elder nominations. The congregation gets to, to nominate men to, to serve as elders that will, that will come together as the session to, to rule the church and to, to lead it in the way that it is to go. But there are some other congregations that are congregational. There are other congregations that are even hierarchical. They, they, they have a hierarchy of, of authority. There, there are differences of opinion about how a church is to be organized. There are differences of opinion about, about baptism. Here we are uh, covenant Baptists. We, we believe that, that the ch uh, children of believers ought to be baptized because baptism is, is the seal of God's promise to the children of believers. But there are other churches who believe that, that baptism should not be received until a person personally makes a profession of faith. There are differences about gifts. We, we live in a town where there are many Pentecostal and charismatic churches that, that view gifts differently than we do. And they view the, uh, the appropriate use of those gifts differently than we do. There are, there are differences of opinion. There are differences of opinion about the nature of God's election and, and how that relates to salvation. There are differences that, that Christians disagree about. That the people who take the Bible seriously and love Jesus don't agree, don't come to the same uh, conclusions. And not only are there really those types of differences, there are also significant cultural differences. We have some here this morning whose, whose first language is not English. They, 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 their first language is Spanish. We, we try to acknowledge that and honor that by, 
by singing some of our own verses in Spanish and by offering translation. But language is often something that, that can divide congregations because it's just easier to worship in your first language. But there are other differences as well. It's not just language that is the cultural divide. There, there are differences of, of the time and the length of services. I remember listening to a, a podcast just a couple weeks ago. and A, a minister was, was speaking about his experience growing up. He said when a member of the community died, he knew how long it was going to be before he got to lunch by what denomination they belonged to. You know, if they were part of the uh, you know, African Methodist congregation, he knew it was going to be 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon before they got to eat. You know, if they were part of a different congregation, he said, we might get to brunch by 10.30. He said, you know, there's, there's differences of, of, of culture that separate. And those are, those are not insignificant differences. No, those, are, those are important differences. And I want to suggest to you, I want you to hear me say this morning, that denominations actually serve us in this present age because they allow people uh, to know which view will be held and which practice will be followed in a particular congregation. And that's good. It means that the particular congregations can consider certain questions settled, even if they're not settled in the church universal. <laughs> there may be still disagreement amongst Christians, but, but at least here we kind of know uh, how, how, what we believe in and how we're going to follow. You know that if you come to, to Trinity that there's going to be ruled by elders that we're going to be Presbyterian in our polity, it's in our name. And so that question can sort of be considered subtle. We don't have to debate it anymore. And that frees us. Having that question settled for this particular congregation frees us to focus on other more important matters. And that's actually the point. There are other more important matters. The things that Christians disagree about are not unimportant. They, they are significant. <coughs> but they're not ultimate. They are not the essentials. They are not at the heart of the gospel or the Christian life. So to disagree about these is to place yourself outside the church. And therefore, churches that differ about these things are still members of the same one body. If they are in Christ, they are members of His body. They are members of the one church. They, they believe in the same one God. They trust the same one Lord. They, they walk in the same one spirit. They hold the same one faith. Therefore, they have the same one hope. And this is what we must acknowledge as the people of God. We must not allow differences of belief or practice or, or culture that are secondary to divide us in an ultimate sense. This is important because the oneness of the church is rooted in the oneness of God, as I said. And so when we, when we, when we deny our unity, we are in some sense denying the singularity of God. We are denying the, the very foundation that the Lord is one. That there is one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Because it is only because there is one God that there can be one church. So when we divide over non-essentials, when we regard the other as truly other, as, as not part of the church, or, or as a lesser part of the church, we are compromising the gospel. 
I said a few weeks ago, the, the inclusion of the Gentiles that we see beginning here, that beginning at this point in the book of Acts, we're going to see uh, taken even further in the next stories about, about Peter and Cornelius. The inclusion of the Gentiles as, as, as essential members of the, of the church is essential to the gospel because it shows us that salvation is in Christ alone by the faithful. There is no other requirement. If you are in Christ, you are a member, a full member of His church. Because salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone, all who believe are members of His body. This is why Paul rebuked Peter so forcefully when he stopped eating with Gentiles. He was living out of accord with the gospel. He was, he was regarding members of the church as if they were other, as if they were lesser. And that could not be tolerated. That was at the heart of the gospel. That's why we must devote ourselves to protecting and promoting the, the peace of the church that ought to, that ought to characterize a unified church. Look, look at that again. That's what, that's what Luke says is going on here. He says the church singular had peace. Now, now some think that that refers to uh, a relief from the persecution that had intensified after Stephen's stoning. You remember that, that from the beginning the apostles faced opposition, that, that, that fairly quickly that opposition rate, uh, uh, rose to the level of, of persecution, but that with Stephen's stoning, that persecution spilled out so that it was no longer directed just against the leaders, but it was now directed against all the men and the women of the church. That's who Paul was going to arrest. He wasn't going to arrest the leaders of the he was going to arrest the, the men and the women who were followers of the way. And so there was this general persecution that was pressing against the church, and, and Paul was one of the points of that persecution. And so some people think that with the conversion of, of Saul, that maybe that persecution abated. But that doesn't seem likely. In the, the two previous paragraphs, we, we've seen Saul himself have to run for his life. Uh, for once from Damascus and then again from, from Jerusalem. So it doesn't seem that Saul's conversion had brought an end to the persecution. And we're going to see further evidence of persecution throughout the, the rest of the book. In fact, Acts is going to end with Paul in Rome uh, in chains, under house arrest. The gospel will not be hindered, but he will be. He will be in jail. And so it doesn't seem likely, at least it doesn't seem likely to me, that, that Luke is referring to an external peace when he says that the church was at peace. Rather, he is talking about the internal peace of the church. He, he's saying that the churches in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, that, that these churches which were one church, that they were enjoying the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. They were living together as one body. The reality of their, of their oneness was being reflected in their life together. Sure, they still had their differences, but they all belonged to Christ. They were all baptized into the same name. They all shared the same salvation, and they knew it, and they lived like it. They lived together in peace. And Christians today must cultivate that same peace. We, we must cultivate the same peace with one another. We must regard our brothers and sisters in Christ as our brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of our family, as members of the same singular church. We may not regard as unbelievers. We, we may not regard as lesser believers. 
those with whom we disagree about secondary points of theology or practice. And much less must may we disregard those who are from different cultures. This doesn't mean we can't talk about things. Again, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. It doesn't mean that we, we can't talk about things. It doesn't even mean that we can't argue in the sense of, of trying to persuade one another using evidence and logic. I'm all for that. I'm all for debate. I'm all for argument. I'm all for trying to refine our, our positions and, and clarify our, our views. If you want to talk about covenant baptism or if you want to talk about unconditional election, I'm here. I'm happy to talk. I'm happy to argue with you. I'm happy to try to persuade you that, that this is what the scriptures teach. But we cannot attack and demonize and, and disregard someone because they disagree with us about these non-essential issues. There is a gospel. We must cling to it. We cannot compromise it. Paul rebuked Peter because he was out of accord with the heart of the gospel. But we cannot, disagree. we cannot divide over lesser issues. We must recognize that we are one church because Christ is one. There is one name given under heaven by which must, men must be saved. And if people believe in him, if people belong to him, if people are in him by faith, then they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that then actually brings us to our, our second point. The point is that we actually, not just thought that they are our brothers and sisters, but that we need them as our brothers and sisters, because it's only as we are together in peace that we will be built up. This is the second thing I want us to see, the, central, the second essential mark of the church. Notice what Luke says. He says, the church had peace and was being built up. To be built up is to be edified. That's a, a word we use in church. We don't use it uh, pretty much anywhere else. But to be edified is to be built up. To be built up is to grow more and more into the image of Christ. Think of the language that Paul uses in, in Romans. He speaks of being no longer conformed to what? The patterns of this world, but rather being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're, we're transformed into the image of Christ. Or as he says it in his letter to the Ephesians, we are to, to attain to mature manhood. No longer be children, but to attain to mature manhood, to the full measure of the stature of Christ. We are made in the image of God. Christ is that image incarnate. We are to be conformed to the image of His glory more and more. That's what it is to be edifying. That is the second characteristic of a healthy church. A healthy church is a church that is being built up. Yes, it's a church that is at peace. It's at peace not with its enemies, but with itself. But in the context of that peace, it is being built up more and more into the image of Christ. It is growing in grace. So this is the second good that we must work towards in our own congregation. We must promote and protect the peace of the church. We must work to, to see that the, the church is being edified in the context of that peace. So this means that we must ask ourselves a twofold question. First, we must ask, am I being built up? That, that's important. Are you being built up? You, you need to, you ought to be edified when you come to church. We, we sometimes speak of, of, of not coming to church as a consumer. You know, we don't want to be consumers when we come to church. Yes, you do. You, you want to be ministered to. You want to feast at the, at the table of God. You, you want to be fed. You want to be built up. You want to be served. That is vital. 
You come to the church needy and broken because we all come to the church needy and broken. You need to be certain. You need to be being built up here. But also you need to ask, am I building others up? Not just am I, being, am I being built up by others, but am I building others up? Am I using my gifts as an opportunity to edify my brothers and sisters in Christ? Because these are actually two sides of the same, of the same coin. The, 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 the one question is, is this congregation or is any congregation an edifying community? Is it a community where people are, are, are strengthened and encouraged and able to grow up more and more into the image of Christ? This is what the church is to be doing. Paul makes it clear in his letter to the Ephesians that this work of edification is the responsibility of each and every member. He gives elders and pastors to the church so that they might equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the work of building one another up. But the work of edification is the work of all the saints. It's the work of the body. The, the church grows, Paul says, as every member does its Yes, ultimately, it is Jesus, as, as Sam was saying to the kids. Yes, ultimately, it is Jesus who, who builds his church. I'm going to come back to that at the end. But we need to recognize that Jesus works through people. This is the book of Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles. But it's also the story of what Jesus is continuing to do. Because Jesus works through the apostles is what Paul says in his letter to the apostles. He says, I worked, I labored, I toiled with all of his power that he was working in and through me. That's the, the way that, that Christ builds his church. He, he builds his church as his people use their gifts and, and take advantage of the opportunities that they are given to build one another up. So again, ask yourself, am I using my gifts to build up the church? This doesn't mean that you have to have a formal role. It doesn't mean you have to be a Sunday school teacher or, or a small group of leader. That, that's not what it means. Those are ways of using your gifts. But, but using your gifts is as simple as participating in worship. Coming and, and singing is, is, is one way of, of promoting it, and, uh, the, the, the work of the church, of building one another up. The conversations that you have in the, the aisles and the hall and the foyer afterwards, that's a, a vital part of our ministry. As you, as you share your lives with one another, as you strengthen and encourage one another, as you speak to someone who's had a hard week and you remind them of the, 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 the truth that we've sung this morning, the Lord will provide. You speak the truth in love into one another's lives. As you pray for one another, and you simply say, hey, listen, how can, I, how can I be praying for you this week? This is all the ways that you use your gifts and, and you can leverage your opportunities to build up the church. And when that is happening, we will see evidence of it. It's what Luke shows us here. When the church is being edified, two things happen. When the church is being edified, they begin to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. These are the marks of edification. These are the evidences of edification. A church that is being built up is a church that will walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit. Now just think about those phrases for a moment. To walk in the fear of the Lord is, of course, to, to walk in obedience. But what is that language of, of fear? We, we're, we're sometimes uncomfortable with that language today. Doesn't perfect love drive out fear? What is this fear that we're talking about? We have to understand it's not a, it's not a servo fear. It's not a, it's not a phobia. I've, I've sometimes compared the fear of the Lord to the, to the fear that a, that a roofer ought to have of gravity. Right? If, if a roofer is, is, is going to be on your roof and is going to be repairing your roof, uh, he cannot be phobic of heights. He won't be able to do his job. 
But at the same time, he better fear gravity, or he won't do his job for long. There's a, there's a proper respect, a proper uh, respect that means I'm going to act appropriately. I understand what gravity is. An electrician has to have a, a proper fear of electricity to do his job. That's the fear of the Lord. The Lord is not safe. He is a consuming fire. We, we cannot trifle with him. We, we, we cannot uh, treat him as, as, as something to be disregarded. He is the one Lord God Almighty, the Holy One of Israel. We must fear him. We must fear his Son, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and who will judge all people uh, at the end of, of time. There's a proper fear. It's not a servile fear, but it's a fear that recognizes God as God and Christ as the eternal Son. And the Spirit as the, the one who wields resurrection power. And the more that we see God as God, the more we see Christ as Christ, we will fear Him, but we will love Him. And we will rest in Him. And we will delight in Him. And we will begin to walk in loving obedience. Not just obedience. Not just an obedience that's, that's, that's cowed by His power. But an obedience that is constrained by His beauty. That's the evidence of edification. That's why, that's why one of the means of edification is just simply speaking the truth of the beauty of Christ to one another. Reminding each other who this Lord is that we serve. Because as we see Jesus and we regard him as God and we behold him, more and more we will walk in obedience to him. But notice, it's not just walking in the fear of the Lord that marks edification. There's a, there's a second fruit here. And that second fruit is the comfort of the Spirit. Those who walk in the fear of the Lord will also walk in the comfort of the, the Spirit. That, that reveals something significant to us. It means that following Jesus faithfully, walking in the fear of the Lord, does not mean that you will avoid trials and tribulations. I've sometimes heard people suggest that if you're just in the center of God's will for your life, then things will be going well. I don't think so. But that's not what happened for John the Baptist. That's, that's not what happened for Paul. That's not what happened for any of the apostles. In fact, sometimes, walking in the fear of the Lord means walking straight into trouble. Paul himself will say, those who, who desire to live godly life will face persecution. Following Jesus means following him into the valley of the shadow of death. It means following him to the cross. But those who follow Christ into the dark valley, they go there with hope. They go there with the hope of the Spirit. That is the comfort that Luke is talking about. They, they go there knowing that the Spirit goes with them. They, never, they go there knowing that, that, that those out there, their enemies cannot harm them. For God is their refuge. He is the one who will provide. Think about what the, the scriptures tell us about the, the spirit of the life of the believer. The spirit is the one who, who manifests God's love in our hearts. The, the love of God is poured into our hearts in the person of the spirit. Or, or the spirit works with our hearts to assure us that we are indeed the beloved children of God. And that he delights to give us every good gift. The, the spirit is the one who works resurrection power in our lives. The, the power that brings us through death into new life. And therefore, when we suffer, and we will, if we follow Jesus, we will suffer. But when we suffer, we will not lose heart. 
but we will know his spiritual comfort because he has promised us good. He is the Lord who provides for his children. This is the second evidence then of, of edification. Those who are edified, or those who are being built up, they walk in the fear of the Lord and they walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. This is the church that we want to be. This is the church that we must strive to be. We, we want to be a church that is being built up into Christ. A, a church that, that walks in obedience regardless of the cost. And does so joyfully because it knows the comfort of the Spirit. And as we do that, as we do that, the world cannot help but notice. And that brings us to the third and final point here, just quickly. The third characteristic that Luke mentions here is multiplication. Because the final, uh, the, the church was multiplying. The church was not just growing up in Christ, it was growing numerically. In fact, we, we see this, um, uh, we see that the, the, the growing up into Christ is actually what facilitates the growth, the way that, that Paul puts it. It says, as they were walking in the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. And so again, it's, it's important for us to see this because sometimes, especially in our circles, we are, let's say, suspicious of church growth te uh, techniques. We know that, that, that church growth techniques sometimes emphasize um, uh, outcome over faithfulness. But, you know, I, I remember when I was an RUF pastor, one of the, uh, the guys who would, one of the older ministers who would sometimes do our training said, listen, if, if all you want is a crowd, I can tell you how to get that. Free beer and pizza. <laughs> so you can get a crowd with free beer and pizza. It's not the crowds you want. That's not the growth anymore. There are, there are techniques that are out of accord with, with health. And so sometimes we're suspicious of, of growth itself. And, and again, I understand that. Because, because growth is dependent on so many things that, that, a, that a church doesn't really control. It's, it's location, for example. Something as simple as where it is. Is it in a, is it in a rural community? Is it in a, is it a booming suburb? Is it, in a, is it a dying city or is it in a growing city? Uh, is it in, a, in the Ukraine and under war? Is it in China under oppression? Or is it in the southern United States where just about everybody uh, at least claims to go to church? You know, those things matter. Those things matter. And so we're, we're hesitant to, to think of growth as a mark of a healthy church. And I, I understand that. But we, I think we can derive a principle from this growth. I'm not suggesting that every healthy church will be growing by this or that percent. That's just simply not true. There are too many other factors that are involved. But there is a mark of health here that I think we can discern. And the mark of health is this, that a healthy church is reaching out into its community. It is reaching out to the unchurched. It is reaching out to the under-discipled in its community. It is sharing the good news of Christ with its neighbors. It's not entirely self-focused. It is a community that, that shines as a light in a dark place and attracts those who are looking for hope. That's what a healthy church does. In, in different contexts, that will mean different, different kinds of numeric growth. But every healthy church is confessing Christ before men as the reason for its growth. And we want to be a church that does that. We want to be a church that proclaims Christ as the reason for our hope to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our family, to our friends. So that they too can be invited to come and hear more. Not every believer is an evangelist. 
I don't have time to explain that statement. If, you, if, you're, if you're interested in what that means, come talk to me later. But not every believer is an evangelist. But every believer is called to confess Christ before men as the reason for that. <coughs> and we can do that in the power of the Spirit. It's one of the marks of a healthy church. And so, just again, think quickly about what we've seen. I don't know we're out of time here. Just quick think about what we've seen. A healthy church has these essential characteristics. A, a healthy church is a church that's at peace with itself. A healthy church is a, is a church that is being edified and built up into Christ, and its members more and more are walking in the fear of the Lord. And a healthy church is a church that is reaching out into its community with the good news of that gospel. And these characteristics, of course, are, are interrelated. It is in the context of peace that a, that a church grows. And it's as a church grows that it, that it attracts more and more people. But of course, as people are attracted, new strangers come in, and then that peace is threatened again. And then the whole process starts over. It's, a, it's an interrelated process, but we must be working. We must be actively striving to embody these three characteristics all the time. We must be nurturing our peace. We, we must be actively seeking to build one another up. And we must be actively reaching out into the community. These are the marks of a healthy church. But if that's all we said, we could be crushed by the obligation. Because we don't have it in ourselves to do this well. We don't have it in ourselves to, to do this the way we need to do it. Like Paul, we, we say, who is sufficient to these things? But that's what we remember what Sam was saying to the kids. Who is it that ultimately builds his church? It's Jesus who builds his church. We are his worker. He works in and through us, but ultimately our efforts will only ever bear fruit if he is working. As the psalmist says, unless the Lord builds his house, the labor's labor in vain. But of course the reverse is also true. If the Lord is working, our labors will not be in vain. As pitiful as our best efforts are, and they are pitiful, they are faulty, they are inherently insufficient. As pitiful as our best efforts are, Jesus uses them to build up his church. Let us devote ourselves to these things, knowing not that we will succeed if we just try hard enough, but knowing that we will become the church we're called to be because he will work through us. He who calls us is faithful, and he will surely do it. And it's because it is Jesus who builds his church. It's Jesus who makes us into the church he calls us to be. It's because he does it that we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that in him we have every resource we need to become the church we're called to be. Father, we pray that you would bless and use our pitiful efforts uh, to build us into the church that you would have us to be the praise of your glory. We pray for Jesus' name. Amen.